to the next interview. This was an interview that I conducted a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, um, when this exhibit first opened at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. I talked to Jonathan Jones about his feature work, um, the feature wall work that is in the D-Packs. If you go up the stairs and head to your left, the huge wall, you can't miss it. Huge neon lighting boomerangs. Um, and this work is called Untitled and in brackets D21 point two eight one Galari Bargan, uh, which I will explain that in a second. Um, and that opened on the 2nd of June. It's going to be taken down at the end of December this year. Always have quite a long lifespan, those feature wall exhibits. Just to give you a wee bit of background before I go into the interview, the interview is around about 20 minutes long, um, but it goes straight in there. I just delve straight in. There's no kind of backstory, so I'm just going to give you a brief rundown. Um, so the Australian Museum in Sydney exchange a collection of Aboriginal Papua New Guinean material with the Otago Museum in Dunedin, um, and they received to Māori Armour, which are barge board supports from the marae in return, um, and included in this traded collection was a Galari Bargam, which is a boomerang, um, from the Lachlan River. So today this boomerang is identified in the Otago Museum collection by its registration number, which is D21.281. Um, the armor that were exchanged are from a Faranui that was collected by Thomas Hocken. You might know that name. Um, and there's a huge history behind that, which is on the Dunedin Public Art Gallery website if you'd like to get more into that. Um, but the boomerang that is in, or boomerang, he, he says, I feel like I get the pronunciation of everything wrong. He is, um, he does identify with, um, indigenous tribes, which he will, uh, he will talk more about in the interview from Australia. Um, and in the field of indigenous, he's in the field of indigenous development as well. So he's very interested in those um, in those areas of work too. So the one in the the Otago Museum is totally undecorated, which indicates that its use was entirely functional, wasn't decorative in any way. Um, and he wanted to explore within these new cultural constructs um, that kind of moving beyond the original function to operate as a point of connection between his tribes and the Tangata Whenua of New Zealand. So that's a little bit of the background. Now I'm going to let him take it away for the rest. It starts pretty abruptly, so that's how the interview's going to go. It's over Skype that I talked to him. Uh, it's about 20 minutes long, so if it's not your cup of tea, maybe just want to turn the dial down or go to another station for a little while. This is the arts show, so we've got these long, arty interviews for you. All right, this is Jonathan Jones, who I talked to a few weeks ago about Galari Bagan. Um, so to just get straight into what's going on, um, your sure. new exhibit, um, Galari Bargan. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, Galari um, Bargan, yeah. Galari Bargan. Okay, so that stands for a type of um, boomerang. Could you explain the context of the work's name and why you chose to incorporate that untitled aspect as well? Yeah, I guess because we... I, I, when I first started looking at doing the project here I was keen to try and find some local cultural connections mm. um, and so I started researching local the local museum and found surprisingly that there was actually a, a number of ma cultural material that was actually from where my family's from okay. um, over in New South Wales which is sort of Wiradjuri nation and one of the sort of key rivers that goes through that nation is the Galari which is now known today as the Lachlan River and um, 
one of the museums in the one of the um, boomerangs um, in the museum is is sort of noted as being from that river. So mm. I started um, just sort of going to see that um, collection and trying to understand that collection, trying to understand its context. And as I started to unpack that um, that boomerangs context, I started to sort of see a bigger sort of cultural conversation happening between Australia and, and New Zealand. Yeah. Um, more specifically, I guess, you know, um, Dunedin and, and, and where I'm from. Um, but yeah, it started to sort of unravel and tell quite an interesting story. Could you give us a brief history of the Indigenous nations that you identify with? Yeah, as quickly as possible. Um, we've got. Um, I'm really lucky. I'm sort of from two quite big nations from mm-hmm. New South Wales. So um, Radri and Camilleroy, who are sort of neighbouring um, nations. They're two of the bigger sort of nations in in Australia, and. Um, we're sort of occupying the east coast of Australia, so we're sort of, you know, very close to that sort of epicentre of colonisation. So in many ways, there's a lot of kind of cultural similarities to Māori iwi down here in, yeah. in Dunedin and, and and that notion of being quite close to very early um, colonisation. Um, also things like uh, we had a massive gold rush as well, which okay. um, literally saw all of our lands kind of turned over um, to, to find gold. So there's sort of some really interesting similarities between our, our cultural connections. And um, today, um, Wiradjuri people um, and Gamilaroi people are sort of part of a very active program of trying to um, regain a lot of our um, cultural sort of knowledge. Yeah. And one of those things is obviously looking um, at our cultural materials that's sitting in museums and collections and trying to understand where our collections have gone and how they got there and what we can do to sort of, um, I, I guess, bring them home, not so much physically bring them home, but definitely bring them home and making sure that the rest of our community is aware where they are and know that, you know, in the future if they need to access them, they can. Mm, do you think withholding Indigenous art in um, private collections, for example, is detrimental to the recovery and revitalisation of the culture? It's probably, like, I mean, um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complex, it's a, it's a difficult one, I guess, but yeah. I guess it, what... What's sort of more important, I think, at the moment is just actually getting a stock take on where everything is and and what's actually out there. Um, I've been really lucky in, you know, in the last sort of 10 years, you can actually start seeing museums in um, all over the world slowly digitising their collections. Yeah, yeah. And that has really kind of shifted the way we've been able to access our knowledge and understand what's happened and where things are, and that's huge. Um, and then slowly we're also starting to see museums really actually embrace um, Indigenous communities coming into their um collections and actually valuing the knowledge that those communities have to actually kind of um, build those collections up and actually give them context and give them kind of a, a kind of a meaningful life opposed to them just sort of sitting into in a collection and being sort of framed by that sort of Western collection practices. So yeah. that's the things are slowly starting to change. And I think in a perfect system, I think... Um, you know, those museums with really good relationships with, with Indigenous organisations and communities actually probably tells a much richer story than if those objects were just to go home, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah. do you do you believe that all artwork with those Indigenous links have to be inherently political in your mind? 
I, I guess just by virtue of the way indigeneity has been framed um, and the way that those materials have been collected, the way that they've been traded, the way that they've been um, been kind of constructed, which for the most part sits well beyond um, indigenous um, kind of control. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's kind of interesting that most of those collections, most of that politicisation is a construction of the West um, and we're um, having to operate within that system and and it, yeah it, it is interesting that they um, that, that those museums now sometimes get a bit strange when they sort of see it as a politicization from our side mm. when in fact you know the way that they were collected the way that they were constructed <laughs> that whole politicization was we didn't do that. Um, we're just responding to that mm. um, and, 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 and actually trying to take, pick up the reins and, and sort of correct the balance. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's quite similar to um, the Māori people in New Zealand as well. And so you were working with local iwi down here, is that correct? Yeah, we are. And so the, the story of this, um, this bargain or this um, or, or, or boomerang, as people would probably know it as, um, was that it was part of a, a, a group of material that was exchanged um, and the material that the Australian Museum in Sydney received was um, parts of uh, a carved house that mm. came over um, and uh, the Australian Museum sent back some um, Aboriginal material and from all, all around Australia but also um, some... Uh, some uh, some uh, oh, I'm trying, Papua New Guinea material oh, as well yeah, was part yeah. of the collection. Yeah, and so that sort of then sort of binds these two groups now or these sort of multiple groups in a new sort of cultural construct, which I think is, um, you know, I, th I think what we do with now with these relationships that this material's now been exchanged um, is really interesting. You know, in a strange way, you know, we are now, um, you know, connected forever because yeah. in a strange way... In Australia, I think that um, the Aboriginal people there probably have cultural responsibilities to look after the carved house on behalf of Māori people um, mm. and uh, vice versa. Um, over here, I guess what I'm expecting is that, you know, that Māori people are, uh, have a bit of a responsibility for our material sitting here. And so I think we've sort of both got each other's backs, which is nice. Um, and, and this project, I guess, is trying to sort of unpack that a little bit and just sort of think about... Um, yeah, how, how we all move forward um, through these next sort of moments I think is really critical. Mm. And to think about the actual work itself on the feature wall in the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, um, the shape of the bargain is also very similar to that of uh, Faranui. Was that intentional? Yeah, that was really intentional. I was so lucky to be welcomed on to um, the two iwis um, and their meeting houses and sort of get to get to sort of see and uh, and understand the importance of those um, those houses. Um, and one of the um, one of the things that was really extraordinary um, sort of to unpack the story even further was that the um, parts of that house that got distributed around the world, including to the Australian Museum, um, was in fact uh, also uh, the, some of the panels of that house were cast in concrete back in the 1940s and used over in the peninsula to build um, the church and the meeting house over there. And so I was lucky enough to go over there and um, see what was really interesting because I, I went there and I could actually recognise some of the um, carvings that oh, I'd wow. seen in Sydney um, in concrete in this beautiful church and meeting house and 
so of course I was really taken by um, uh, you know the, the obviously I guess the structure of those 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 houses mm. and what they represent and that notion of bringing people together and that they but also I guess um, what that community on the peninsula did in the 1940s when they decided to um, use a, you know a concrete um, cast um, and make their house out of this extraordinary new material and I think there's something quite interesting about um, those cultural decisions that um, our elders make um, in order to keep culture moving forward mm. um, and I think probably as younger people we're probably a little bit more hesitant <laughs> about um, some of those decisions yeah. um, which is interesting and it was interesting hearing some of the younger um, or community members today sort of yeah, sort of trying to understand what those decisions were that led their elders to make that call. Um, and I think, um, so that sort of house and, and, and thinking about the shape of that house and also um, the boomerang, and obviously the boomerang is such a um, culturally loaded symbol, mm. this idea of things that sort of return and come home. And so in a strange way, this project's really thinking about this knowledge sort of circulating, returning, coming back to people um, and, and who's prepared to catch it and who's prepared to um, take that responsibility. Yeah, and I read that the Galari Bagan that's in the Otago Museum is um, it's quite plain, so it was created for more of a functional use. Does the function of light within the work that you have at the DPAG reflect that original purpose in any way? Yeah, we've, um, I guess, in a strange way, I've been lucky enough to work with light on a few projects um, over the years, and I, in, in many ways I've sort of always thought that light is a bit like knowledge or ideas, that, that idea that it can, um, you know, the light really responds to the environment mm. um, and responds to people and people have direct connections to those stories, to, the, to that light and the response they have. And the, um, I, I guess in a strange way, um, even though the wall pattern, you know, design is made up of this, you know, you could break it down to this one boomerang, um, but we've sort of repeated it and, and um, created this extraordinary design, which in a strange sort of way speaks to Māori carving, um, yeah. a, a little bit unintentionally, but a, a bit intentionally as well, um, but also speaks to um, a lot of the design work that we would do back home um, on, on objects to sort of signify their significance. So in a strange way, I was trying to sort of reimagine a design that could potentially be put onto that um, onto that um, boomerang, that bargain, and just sort of, I guess, place it into a different context. Because I guess, you know, originally that um, that boomerang might have been used in a very sort of functional um, way, mm. but now that it's been sort of removed, um, collected, placed into a museum, part of an exchange to go to another museum overseas and now we're sort of being engaged with descendants from that place. That boomerang has taken on quite a sort of significant role mm. um, in telling these stories. So I sort of wanted to reimagine it and put it uh, and create a design for it. So in some ways the design on the wall is is my sort of um, the design that I would place on, on, that, on that boomerang. It's very beautiful. I got to see a picture of it lit up this morning and it almost lit up the entire gallery. Okay. Yeah, it's a really um it's it's really fantastic. There's this uh, extraordinary kind of um yeah, so there's almost over it's like 200 um fluorescent lights um being used and what's quite interesting though is all the shadow as well that mm. creates 
Um, so in between all the lights, there's this, which, which you wouldn't think would actually occur, but there's some really beautiful sort of falls of shadow and you get some really great shapes starting to occur um, across the, the span of the wall. Yeah, is that something you consider with every light installation that you do? Yeah, I've always been shocked at the the negative space that sits between the lines, mm. um, and 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 yeah, that it does actually produce quite a dark um, effect. Even though it's all on a plain white wall with plain you know white lights, you get this really interesting push and pull of you know light and and shadow. Yeah, and um, I mean a little bit of a more technical question, but does. Does the lack yeah. of UV protection from the street-facing gallery windows in the DPAG have the potential to interfere with the exhibit after a prolonged period of time? Um, this is, that's something the beauty. I was um, I I was really lucky. I, I, I like I when I um I grew up I, I grew up with my um, granddad who was a bit of a tinkerer and a bit of a hoarder. So most of my works are um, created out of um, really sort of. Um, industrial sort of bits oh, of great. material. Yeah. So um, yeah, this is just sort of standard lights, um, really cheap um, lights that you could get from the hardware shop, um, and and just put up. So they're sort of really robust um, and pretty um, pretty tough. Um, I, yeah, it's not um, a, a watercolor or a, um, a historical um, photograph. Yeah. This is this is probably not going anywhere in a hurry. Okay, fantastic. And did yeah. the site um, of the actual public art gallery directly affect the work you ended up producing? Yeah, I think there's this really I mean what's really nice is the interaction of the natural light coming in. And so we've used we've sort of um, chosen those sort of uh, the the daylight tubes. So they're sort of not that really cool white light or the really warm yellow light that you can get off um, fluoro lights. So they sort of interact with the outside world really well and hopefully, um, I think that time around dusk and early morning there'll be a really interesting play between the light being produced of, from, from the tubes and, and the outside light, sort of ambient light mm. sort of changing down. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's very exciting. Is that opening this weekend? That's opening on Friday, yeah. Oh, great. Friday night and then on, yeah, yeah which is great. Um, are you doing a talk this weekend as well? Yeah, on Saturday at 11 o'clock we're doing a talk. Oh, great. That's so cool. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you what your opinion was uh, on the current movement for Australian corporates to adopt that reconciliation action plan in regards to the Aboriginal people. Are you aware of that? Yeah, bits and pieces. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard those things sort of coming through. And yeah, we've had. Um, it, it it is difficult. I think the. I mean, we're, we're sort of having this conversation on because essentially some of those um, action plans really start to put in place as long as they. And, and I mean, some of them are very sort of wordy and just saying nice things. Mm. Um, which is great and doesn't have much action. Um, but as we're probably all aware, um, right across um, a few fields at the moment, we're having some debate around um, quotas and, um, and, and, and what workplaces should look like. <laughs> and I think it's really... As long as, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think obviously the world that we're living in at the moment is a complete construction of... Um, 
of quotas, even though no one likes to mention that those quotas have been set by certain people that mm. have kind of maintained what we have today. <laughs> um, those quotas are very much in existence and govern our lives. And mm. so as long as we, um, as those action plans actually have some real teeth in them and put some quotas in place to actually how you can actually action um, reconciliation and actually sort of make some real change for people, um, I think they're really good things. Um, but as long as they do that and they're not just um, really nice words that everyone likes to hear. Yeah. Does the way in which Indigenous people make sense of these types of new colonial relationships affect the process of decolonisation in your eyes? Yeah, I think it does. And it sort of ha it probably happens every day. You know, people are sort of obviously dealing with these issues. Um, it and obviously within their own families and, you know, extended families, we're dealing with these issues of um, how Aboriginal cultures are rubbing up against other cultures. But I think on these much bigger national scale, um, when we're talking about, um, yeah, like reshaping um, workplaces, industries, um, that they have, you know, they do have the potential to have some really important impacts. And I think... Um, in Australia, uh, it's sort of embarrassing to say that terms like decolonisation, um, you know, uh, often, uh, you know, probably scare people a little mm. bit um, and make people sort of think twice. So we're sort of, I, I sometimes I feel, I, I'm often looking at New Zealand um, thinking, oh, I wish we could be more like them. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think we're slowly getting towards a, a sort of a more interesting place, but we are... Um, we are a very small, we're sort of just over 2% of the population in Australia, mm. so it's a very different cultural makeup. Um, and we identify as almost 500 different nations all speaking our own language. So how Australia sort of comes to terms with that extraordinary um, 60,000 years of multicultural um, history um, and sort of wraps that up in a reconciliation action statement, which can sometimes just be a one-pager, yeah. <laughs> um, is really interesting. <laughs> um, and, you know, and I think that's where, yeah, I mean, obviously that's where people really need to stop and think about what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Are there any action plans that you've seen in the past that have made a real difference for you and your people? Yeah, I, I've been really lucky to work on um, work over at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney. Um, I'm, I'm one of the advisory boards there, and I can sort of obviously speak directly to that, um, where there are a whole bunch of quotas put in place, um, and those quotas sit from everything from Aboriginal employment to Aboriginal programming to Aboriginal acquisitions um, right across the board, and. It really is interesting to see an organisation who is obviously very, very committed to it um, and when they start seeing on a spreadsheet where they're failing um, to see that they're really wanting change and some responsive action starts to take place. And I think that's, um, you know, obviously those, those really nice words mm -hmm. around reconciliation, those really high-hitting goals of actually trying to create change needs to be matched by the willingness of um, everyone in, the, in those organisations from the top to the bottom. And when those things all fall into place, that's when something, you know, really special can happen. Yeah. Were there any uh, sort of reconciliation plans that you saw in operation in New Zealand with the Māori people here that you were particularly impressed with? 
No, I've never sort of, I haven't been getting into that nuts and bolts sort of material, um, to tell you the truth. Um, And I'd be really interested in seeing how some of those work and how some of those relationships um, play out. Mm. Um, I mean, often, as as we know, like, you know, um, we often look at a treaty and think, God, I wish we had a treaty. But then, you know, as you, as you guys know here, treaties are, are nothing mm-hmm. unless people honour them. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, it is, I guess, that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's that double act, isn't it, of honouring those words, um, but also having those words there to, to, to sort of uphold. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, so for those who might be simply just walking past the work on their way to the other galleries, what do you hope that they contemplate, even if it's only for a short period of time? Uh, oh, that's hard. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit of a... So I'm hoping that I'm... A, uh, like, I sort of go for the slow burn. Um, I'm thinking, you know, that hopefully people can... You know, some people might not take away anything and, you know, 10 years, 15 years, maybe it connects to something they saw down the line, mm. which is great. Um, but as long as people start thinking... I think people will probably look at this um, and hopefully sort of maybe start thinking about some of those cultural connections that we have um and you know we now are connected you know these by virtue of this colonial sort of trafficking and trading of of our material we're connected and what we do with that connection will determine um how we deal with you know decolonization and how our children will deal will deal with decolonization and so i think that's you know for me a really important thing to take away Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, And I can't wait for it to open tomorrow in the DPEG. Awesome. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having us. Cool. Thank you so much for chatting with me, Jonathan. Have a lovely day. And that was Jonathan Jones joining me over Skype. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him in person. Uh, But he was talking about his exhibit at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, untitled, and then the subheading D21.281 Galari Bargan, which is about a cultural exchange between Sydney and Dunedin over a boomerang. Um, Very interesting to have a look on the Dunedin Public Art Gallery website, uh, to have a, a look into the history behind both of those cultural items in a wee bit more depth. Um, I'm coming to the end of my show though, so I don't want to give everything away. So if you go on to dunedin.art.museum and then you can see all of the background information behind all of the current exhibits that are showing. Um, and there, I mean, I've interviewed um, every single person that's now has a feature exhibit at the Dunedin Public Art Gallery, which is pretty cool. Um, of course, really big highlights up in the two galleries on the first floor of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. That's Matthew Galloway's The Freedom of the Migrant and Not Neutral um, Selected Works from the Wellington Media Collective Archive. Those are two that you must check out if you haven't checked out already, but they're on until August, so you've got plenty of time.